Greetings and welcome to the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Boxing Esquire Podcast. We're switching it up a little bit this week. Uh, My guest is going to talk about the sport of mixed martial arts. He's one of my favorite MMA writers, uh, John Nash. Uh, we spoke about uh, UFC and what's going on outside of the octagon uh, that may shape the structure of MMA, including the fighters' antitrust suit, uh, the bill in Congress uh, to extend the Ali Act to MMA, and the movements to organize fighters into an association or a union. Um, we also talk about how what's going on in MMA can be used to help shape boxing into uh, a better organized and more fan-friendly sport. Uh, it was a really great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I'm very excited to have John Nash, um, writer for Bloody Elbow. Um, I know it's a little departure for for boxing fans, but but John is uh, amazingly knowledgeable about um, certainly MMA, but also just in how sports leagues work. And he's done a lot of research on antitrust. So uh, uh, really excited to talk to you, John. Welcome to the Boxing Esquire podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. We have speaking to our one fan of Show Money <laughs> podcast. I do. Well, yeah, you know, let me just say from the outset, I'm a massive fan of uh, of the Show Money podcast, and uh, John does that with uh, economist and professor uh, Paul Gift, who writes uh, about MMA for Forbes now, and uh, Jason Cruz, an attorney from the Northwest, who has an excellent and uh, influential MMA website, MMA Payout. Um, and, and John, of course, writes uh, really well-researched articles for SB Nation's, uh, is it an MMA blog? Is Bloody Elbow, would you call it a blog? It's a, a blo- combat sports blog, so we, it's mostly MMA-focused, but we do other sports. Like, we, we cover boxing and stuff, too, so I'll dip into boxing, like, what, every fifth or sixth article. Right, the PBC articles were awesome, by the way. I highly recommend people digging those up that, that John wrote, so... Um, you know, I would have loved to have had all three uh, musketeers from the uh, the show Muddy Pod on, but uh, I thought it might be a little unwieldy to have four people on the on the on the podcast. So I'm kind of in, in touch with you most, John. So I, so I reached Thank, out. To yeah, you. if you if you've if you've seen how bad we uh, how much we talk over each other on the podcast, just imagine how bad it'd be here. So. <laughs> wow. So so. On the Show Money podcast, you are cryptically known as as the man who who knows everyone in MMA. But uh, I wanted to get a little more into your background. So, where where are you from originally? I'm originally from uh, Minnesota, just outside Minneapolis. Okay, okay. And how'd you get involved in MMA? Uh, I just uh, well, let me see. I I you know I I was born in the '72, so MMA. I was about 20 when uh, the UFC first started. And I actually hated it. I was a big boxing fan, and I despised. I, I thought MMA was the worst thing possible through the '90s, it, <laughs> when it was known as no holds barred. Right. I saw and I saw several events because I'd go to parties and people would be playing it. And they'd say you got to watch this, or we, we bought the pay per view, so I'd be sitting there watching with them. And I, I barely remember anything. I just remember just this is the worst fighting I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. You know, but, uh, we're watching this, and then the next night we can watch. You know, Ben versus McClellan was on, and I'm like, you're, ah. you're telling me these guys are in the same category. I, you know, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> So uh, I did. I disliked MMA for years, and then I, I, I'm living in Hollywood now, and I work in the film industry. That's my normal job, hmm. and I worked on a really bad movie. Let's be honest; it's terrible, called No Rules, and I think 2002. And it's a, it's like, the, it's a movie about MMA fighters, 
Uh, and it's basically every cliche about MMA, you know, <laughs> terrible rap metal, uh, uh, big-breasted women, bad affliction. Everything in it is just it's an awful presentation. But I got to meet some of the fighters, and I met Frank Shamrock's on it and Randy Couture, uh, whose name I still can't pronounce because of some weird handicap I have, Randy Couture. Uh, and then uh, I met them, and, and you realize the fighters are really smart, really tactical, really skilled. And they explain the sport. You're like, wow, this is much better than what they're presenting. Right. And since I was in martial arts too, I actually I really was really into martial arts at the time. I switched from trying to box to doing just doing Krav Maga and, uh, and Muay Thai on the side. So that I'll just give it a try. And I, I, Randy Couture's fight came back to fight uh, Chuck Liddell. It was the first pay per view I checked out, and I, you know I was I was hooked. And then I saw Pride after that, so I got really hooked into it. So that's my that's my history. I was I, I I'm not one of those guys like I might have saw the first UFC, but I didn't like it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it was it took me years to to get back. So Frank Shamrock and Randy Couture were the two guys watching their fights, especially going back and watching Frank's fights uh, on the video that guys would give me back then against Tito Ortiz and stuff. That's what hooked me on the sport because it's there is a lot of it's just a really interesting lab experiment of what like what works in a fight and what doesn't. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's definitely evolved over the years as well from, from the early days and, uh, you know, to, to what it is today, which is a massive booming business that was, you know, bought for $4.2 billion, which is, which is insane. Um, so, so people can find your work now on, uh, on bloody elbow and, and obviously the, uh, I forget like the, the family of podcasts that show money is on. Oh, it's on the MMA Nation dot uh, right. uh, com, MMA Nation dot com YouTube channel. Okay, okay, okay. All right, so um, let's get let's get to it. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things going on in the MMA world right now. Seems like the entire structure of the sport is uh, is being fought over right now. Um, we have an antitrust suit brought on behalf of the fighters where they're, they're challenging the UFC's, uh, way of doing business and, 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 you know, claiming monopoly, uh, in the, uh, seller's market, basically and monopsony in the, in the buyer's market. Um, and, and we'll get to that. Um, also the legislation in Congress trying to extend the Ali act, which is one that only pertains to boxing at this point in time to MMA. And also a, a few different entities trying to organize the fighters into either a, a union or an association. So uh, let's start with the antitrust suit. Um, uh, if you can give just the basics of, of, of what the allegations are and, 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 and the background behind it. Okay. Well, first of all, I apologize. I got a cough. So every once in a while I might cough. No I, worries. But uh, <laughs> over, I had a cold a couple of weeks ago. The, the basic allegation is uh, in, in end of 2014, a group of, uh, fighters uh, filed an antitrust suit. Uh, they, they're filing it as a class action. So what they are is they're the the class representative, the potentially class representative fighters. They're, they're claiming that this suit will then be on behalf of all the fighters in the UFC during the, the time period that the suit takes place. And what the allegation is, is that the UFC has a, a, a monopoly, and because they have monopoly, they have a monopsony, uh, and a monopsony is the reverse of a monopoly. When you have a monopoly, you're the only seller of a product. When you have a monopoly, you're the only buyer. And in this case, UFC would be the only buyer of top-level elite MMA uh, uh, services. When, and when you say, you know, and when you're speaking legally, when I say they're the only, they're not literally the only, but they have such control over the market, they're arguing, that they dictate the prices. They control the market because they're so powerful. 
So their argument is that the UFC has this monopsony, and because they, they attain this monopsony through uh, uh, antitrust violations and they abuse this monopsony, they're actually lowering the wages that fighters would have got on a, on a fairer market if the UFC had not engaged in this behavior. Right, right, right. So, you know, th- thus far, the, uh, the fighters were able to survive a motion to dismiss. Um, and I guess recently uh, they, they filed for class certification. Um, and there have been a couple of motions to challenge the uh, expert testimony of a, a few of the fighters' experts. Um, you guys covered this pretty well in the, in the Show Money podcast, but um, just all in. I mean, how do you see this this lawsuit playing out, and and how will it affect the uh, UFC's way of doing business? I I mean I don't know. It depends, I guess, the outcome how it affects their way of doing business. Since the lawsuit's been filed, uh, we've noticed some change in behavior. The UFC now, can you say it's the lawsuit that changed the behavior? I can't prove that unless you know Dana White or or, uh, or the W uh, William Morris can, says that it changed it. But we can infer that it's they've changed their behavior because it happened right around then. And and some of the behavior changes is the UFC used to ha- add tolling provi- provisions. What those are is let's say you have a fight and you 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 can't fight on that date for whatever reason. They can send add three to six months based on the contract to your contract, extend the contract that long. And so what I would hear in the past is fighters regularly, when they would get offered a fight and then they would move and say, I can't do that date, but I can do this date, they'd get notices that they, this tolling provision had been added. So fighters would, at the end of their normal contract, let's say it's a four-fight, two-year deal, they would see that they have 18 extra months added. So they, the UFC had the, could, would have to give them four fights not in two years, but four fights in three and a half years. And you could see how much influence that would give a promoter because they could freeze you out at the end if they wanted to. So since it's been filed, we haven't seen them engage in that behavior. They, I haven't heard from from managers or fighters of them getting those same emails uh, notifying them that there's been extensions. We also saw a bunch of fighters that were retired and contracts were frozen suddenly have uh, the UFC renounce their contractual rights. They had a guy named Heath Herring uh, who refused to fight for him after in two, after 2008 fight against Brock Lesnar. For like eight years, the UFC retained his rights. And then suddenly, okay, you're free to sign with someone else. And they did this repeatedly you know, with uh, Vanderlei Silva, with uh, Kong Lee, with Randy Couture, all these guys that were locked in these perpetually frozen retirement clauses. They suddenly you know, uh, withdrew their contractual rights. Again, can't prove it has to do with the antitrust, but it seems very possible. That it's <laughs> the timing and is conspicuous. You, <laughs> yep. And I've heard on two different occasions, one from you and one from someone else, that a UFC contract has a sunset provision now, uh, right. like a five-year max. Right. That at, at the, the contract, even with the option extensions, can't go beyond five years. And that's common in boxing because, you know, uh, California and New York laws have those limits on contracts. But that's unheard of in MMA, and that's new. So, again, you, it suggests that they're doing it because of the antitrust suit. You know what? what I think all, is going to happen. All of that's right. interesting. I'm sorry, just, just, to, just to cut in just about the contract provisions. I mean, all of these things, I mean, and, and you and I kind of discussed this a little bit on, on uh, you know, in exchanges on Twitter, but, I mean, all of this stuff comes from boxing contracts. You know, I mean, Lawrence oh. Epstein, who's the in-house at, uh, or now he's much bigger than in-house, but... Uh, He's kind of the, the, the counsel at, at UFC and has been for a long time. And, and he used to be counsel for top rank. So 
you know, as far as those uh, injury extensions go, those are in boxing contracts. It's pretty much a, a feature of, of, of boxing contracts. But I've never heard of a promoter who's ever been that aggressive with, I mean, after every fight, you know, a, a fighter will be suspended for a little while if he's got, you know, unless it ended at like 12 seconds, you know, I mean, if he's got a cut, if he's got, if he's a little banged up, the commission will, will suspend them, you know, anywhere from like a week or two to, you know, 30 days. Or obviously if someone gets knocked out, they're going to get suspended for longer than that. Um, but most promoters in, in my, in my 20 years of managing fighters are just not that aggressive in, in sending out those provisions um, certainly if a fighter won a fight, you would never see them, even if they got a little eensy beensy, you know, suspension, um, you would never see a, a promoter send out something like that. So the UFC in, in, in that sense is, is much more aggressive than, than boxing. Um, as far as the, the retirement provisions, yeah, <laughs> the only guy I could think of where, where that came into play, I, I forget the case, but I remember Don King kind of hounding someone who'd been, who claimed retirement and then kept trying to come back. And, and, and Don was, was, you know, saying, well, if you come back, you know, you've got time left on my contract. So, you know, the, the UFC is kind of, you know, uh, or was dealing in, uh, you know, Don King like behavior, I would say. Yeah, and, <laughs> and then of course the boxing, though, that, 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 um, that fighter wanted to, he could take it to California or New York where they have specific regulations. Um, in, in New York, in New York, it's, it's directed at boxing. I don't know if they're, they're, uh, applied to MMA, but in New York, it specifically says no contract can be longer than four years. I think five with an extension. It, 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 right. It's, the specific wording. it's a three, it's a three year term with, you know, two yeah. distinct, like op, one year options. So in essence, five years. Yeah. Yeah. So those, those sunset provisions, those in, in boxing, there's, there's venues you can go to, to fight anyone trying to apply a contract for in perpetuity on those type of contract obligations. Uh, and boxing, this is not boxing contracts can be terrible. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen uh, I've seen <laughs> boxing contracts that that last longer than you know that have, you know, people talk about oh UFC contracts are never ending. Well, there's boxing contracts that also have extensions and all these things that could just be a pain in the ass. But the one thing I know about boxing contracts that are different is usually the pay is not locked in specifically, no matter where you are in your career. It it fluctuates based on the type of. Uh, the type of venue you play at. If you're on an HBO main card, there's a, spe- a lot of boxing contracts will have a specific minimum for that. And if you're a bigger name fighter, a rank fighter, whatever, you're probably getting a percentage of the compensation the promoter makes. So it's, it, that's what's different in a weird way. Like if a boxing promoter put a lot of energy to build you and has these, ex- these extensions and options to keep you, they can keep you maybe longer than some MMA promoters could. But your contracts usually have some sort of thing that guarantees you're going to get paid closer to your market value at that point than an MMA contract might have. An MMA, you might be fighting in a championship and stuck on a $50,000 payday uh, for a heavyweight championship in MMA. That's feasible. That's right. Not, I, I don't, you wouldn't hear something like that in boxing. Absolutely. Yeah, in boxing, they, they break it out by, you know, generally. I mean, again, each promoter does it in a slightly different way, but you usually have off TV fights, you have TV fights, you have it broken down by networks, HBO, Showtime, or, you know, the old, you know, what used to be ESPN. ESPN is obviously now different. They pay a much higher licensing fee, but it used to be for Friday night fights, you know, you knew the budget was less than Showtime and HBO, so you break that out. You know, if someone becomes a champion, they're making X amount. If they challenge for a title, they're making X amount. Um, yeah, it was, it was, you know, it seems like, you know, I've seen UFC contracts where it's just like, there's one number 
<laughs> that's the minimum. That's what you make for like every fight, you know. Um, you know, maybe it yeah, changes. It'll, it'll for, go up if you win, but it right. goes up two thousand if you win. It, right, it, right. You could it's be in a you could be in a mandatory uh, uh, title elimination bout and still be stuck at making ten thousand dollars more than what you made in your first fight three fights ago. Right, right. There's, yeah, there's no fluctuation on it. So that's yeah, that's a big difference. But the so what I see going forward is uh, Paul Gibbs pretty negative. I mean, he's pretty pessimistic about the plan of odds. I'm much more, I guess, um, optimistic, partly because. I'm taking the assumption that the little bit that we've seen that's been leaked, that there's a lot more information like that in the case. And what I mean is stuff that shows the UFC engaging behavior that could be interpreted as uh, abusing their monopsony power, their monopoly power. Mm. And uh, we, we see a few little tidbits in there, like there was a, uh, a leaked, uh, the judge had a comment about the purchase of pride that suggests that it was a defensive purchase, basically to eliminate the brand and, and competition. Pride was a former, the Japanese, uh, for those who aren't familiar, was the Japanese MMA promotion that was uh, the big rival of the UFC in the early parts of the 2000s. And then there's other stuff about Joe Silva, or uh, Mike Mersch was a, a lawyer for UFC, basically telling a, telling a fighter that uh, you have to sign before your last contract, otherwise you, you know... You like that is obvious kind of monopoly abuse and i'm just it's a few there's only been a few comments in the case that we've seen that hasn't been redacted but makes me think there's got to be a lot more maybe there's not if there's not anymore then yeah then the plaintiffs are in trouble but there's a lot more it's a much stronger case right 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 well let's say let's say the plaintiffs do win and i mean the damages would be what in the i mean they're they're asking for you know over a billion dollars right in damages well, they have a they have a range, but yeah, the the damages are it, depending on how you calculate what the damages would be. It would be my guess would be uh, if it goes all the way to trial, and the and the judge or jury decides in the plan of savers, you're talking about probably anywhere from five hundred million to a billion dollars in damage. And then because it went all the way to trial, there was no settlement. If you win, they treble the damages, so you get three times that amount. Right. So if it's seven hundred fifty million that they want, it'd be suddenly that you you know two point two five billion. Hmm. That purchase doesn't look as good anymore. That four billion dollar purchase. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I mean, you. I, I thought you were kind of someone who uh, who thinks this thing's going to settle. I, I, that's why I think it'll settle because right. there'll be a point where you do not want to take the risk that the damages could be that great. At the same time, the plaintiffs, their attorneys, don't want to take the risk that there's they're going to lose the case and not get anything. Right. So the two sides are going to come together and say, what's, what's the risk for us? Uh, and so I think there'll be a settlement a hundred, 200 million would be my guess. Minimum. Um, I don't think the plaintiffs will take less than that, but a uh, hundred or 200 million. And that's in a weird way. Okay. The fighters get some money. I mean, the attorneys are going to collect their about 20% cause that's the usual fee for a class action. 20%. The judge sets it. It's people, you know, it's not the one third that people assume it's the judge sets the amount uh, so, and then the, what's left over, the fighters will make a little bit of money, but for the UFC, for how much they make now, uh, that to me, I could see them writing off as just a cost of doing business. Right, right, right. Absolutely. I mean, their, their profits, what the estimate is, uh, at least like a, a couple hundred million dollars a year, right? If not- I, yeah. Going la- into last year, the last I heard was they were shooting for over 300 million in EBITDA. So that's, you know, basically 300 million in profit. And uh, before the interest interest they have to pay off for the the loan that they had to to buy the four billion, but uh, and then their their projections going forward, you look at some of the docs that uh, were floating around and were on the sale. They're, I mean, they're shooting for three fifty, probably four four hundred fifty after the TV deal. 
Okay, yeah, we'll get to the TV deal. That, that's yeah, that's we'll a say very, that. very interesting part of it. Um, but um, yeah, let's. Uh, all right, so so that's the antitrust suit. Let's let's get to. Um, and you wrote a you wrote an excellent article about this uh, for Bloody Elbow uh, about you know whether MMA was a sport or not, and the the pros and cons of of extending the the Muhammad Ali Act to MMA. Um, uh, you know, most boxing fans would know what the what the Ali Act is. That's something that uh, Senator McCain Senator McCain from Arizona helped to push through uh, to protect boxers from uh, historical practices uh, in, in boxing that you know were, were kind of egregious uh, that were pulled by promoters and sanctioning bodies and so on. Uh, you know uh, they you know created provisions where uh, you know there's disclosure of revenue uh, to the to main event fighters. You know on in, in in TV fights, uh, there's, uh, you know, they have to disclose the revenue that are coming in before they can uh, receive it. Um, the requirement of a, a firewall between promoters and managers and promoters and sanctioning bodies, um, the establishment of objective ratings criteria. And, and, uh, you know, and I, I guess, uh, for the UFC, you know, almost all of those provisions I just mentioned are, are, are kind of key ones that, that aren't in existence now. So uh, talk to me about uh, uh, what are the consequences and, and, and what's kind of going on with uh, extending the Ali Act to MMA. Well, the good thing is I have a, a really in-depth article of what the Ali Act would do to MMA, which I, I use you as one of the sources. I interviewed you for it, <laughs> or talked to you, I should say. But I'm sitting on it because not much has happened with the Ali Act over the last few months. It's just, just sitting there waiting for some event to uh, trigger me posting it so that, you know, to take it, some timely events so I can take advantage of the uh, the interest in it again. Right. But, uh, the, I mean, it was making a lot of momentum last year, a surprising amount. It had 58 co-sponsors, the bill that was introduced by uh, Representative Mark Wayne Mullen. So you're thinking, wow, this really might pass Congress. And then Congress shut down. And then they're having, you know, every week there seems to be a new, um, um, a new emergency that they got to jump on. And the Ali Act has been put to the, the back burner, pushed aside. And I don't know if it's going to be, you know, if they're going to get it back on track or if it's going to permanently be stuck, pushed aside because of all the problems that are happening in D.C. right now. But uh, if they do get it back on track, uh, it does sound pretty good for Congress. Uh, a lot of, I mean, I don't think, people, I think, overestimate the power of, like, the UFC and William Morris. They're not, a ma- they're not like the pharmaceutical industry that has massive amount of, you know, influence in Congress. Uh, a lot of congressmen, since they, they don't really depend on these, you know, the, um, the UFC, I think they would be willing to go along with their, with a fellow member of the house of representatives just to give him a win. Mm. So the Congress part, the house of representatives seems like an easy win. When it gets to Senate, it gets harder. And we got to remember William Morris is now the owners, but the Fertitta spent, I mean, literally millions and millions of dollars last election cycle to elect a lot of Republican senators to help them. Mm. You know, they, they gave millions to those guys. I can't remember, but it literally is millions. It's a huge, they were huge uh, um, campaign fundraisers for them. So I can imagine the Republicans blocking it in the Senate. Uh, if it passes both, and that's still a possibility, then it goes to tr- uh, Donald Trump. And everybody thinks Donald Trump will uh, will veto it because he's friends with Dana White. I I don't know. Is he that loyal? Is it that important? Is the UFC that important to his uh, his you know his political future that he would go against both houses of representatives on a bipartisan bill to protect Dana White? 
Mm. I'm not sure. I, I don't think that'll happen. So I think it would pass if it got that far. It's just getting past Senate. It's going to be the big question. And then when it gets past Senate, uh, how would it impact MMA is the big question. Because there's a lot of stuff in that would, which, if enforced the way people assume the bill is interpreted, uh, would dra- drastically change how MMA business is being conducted. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, th- that seems to be it. I know you've, you've had uh, some sparring on, uh, uh, on uh, Twitter over this, but, um, I mean, just separating the, the, the title from the entity, I think, is, is a huge one, where the UFC would, you know, either, I mean, obviously, they're not going to be a sanctioning body. They're a promoter. That's how they make their money. So um, giving up their uh, being able to control the title to, to uh, a separate entity, I mean, that, that, that's massive, right? Oh yeah, it's it's a complete change of the business plan, um, and it's it's. I mean, right now, as much as people, I, I think, kind of refuse to acknowledge it, the UFC's control of their titles uh, gives them a lot of monopoly power. It, I'm not saying it's a legal monopoly power, but it's monopoly power no matter what, because if everybody only accepts one title as the real official title, and you own that title, guess what? You have a monopoly on the one a title that everybody cares about. Right. So. And so if you take that away, yeah, that's a big change. I think personally, though, without uh, even if the bill passes and without, I guess we'll get into unions and associations later, but without some sort of real enforcement mechanism that really enforces it, I don't think much will change. And I think you agree, too, that not much will change in the business because the UFC has so much, there's such a gulf between them and everybody else that some sanctioning body is going to decide the, my best interest is the UFC's interest and I will follow the UFC's lead. They don't even have to say anything. We don't have to conspire. We don't have to collude. I'll just have to, you know, kind of guess what the UFC wants, and I'll follow it. And basically, one sanctioning organization would become the de facto UFC title at that point, and we'd be back to where we are. Right, right, right. Yeah, because I mean, in, in in boxing, you know, at, at very, you know, whichever promoter kind of has the, the the most power in the market in boxing tends to, uh, I wouldn't say, you know dictate to the sanctioning bodies but let's say that the sanctioning bodies you know interests are kind of in line with them <laughs> and, and they kind yeah, of go yeah. along with with who the power players are um, i mean the one difference in boxing is because there's four major sanctioning bodies uh and and no promoters that powerful they all don't start you know servicing one you know promoter they they kind of hop around and then you know then after a while the promoter sanction body something they have a falling out or someone else steps in and they flip and they're you know so there's kind of a an intertwined competition between those groups as well. Right. Business gets spread around a little bit for, for sure. But I, I think I remember uh, speaking to you about this, what you were hoping is that, you know, you have, you know, one or two other, uh, well, obviously Bellator is the big one and they they have a couple of fighters who are legit, you know, top five uh, fighters in their weight division, Um, you know, to have them, be able to compete and 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 have that second entity in you in in MMA where top fighters can go to um outside of the UFC and still get you know a, a shot at the at the big prize um you think that would kind of revolutionize uh, what's going on and certainly would help with the uh, fighter pay See the big and and you kind of I mean you're the one kind of convinced me of this too and so did uh, I talked to Pat English and he thought like a uh, an, if you had some sort of like an association enforcing the Ali Act, right. uh, in other words, uh, because an association, uh, a group of collective of fighters, they they have standing in courts on behalf of their members. So instead of like in boxing where occasionally you have lawsuits about the Ali Act being you know 
independently filed by usually wealthy boxers, the only ones that have the money to actually do it, you would have a group of fighters pooling the resources so they could constantly file uh, lawsuits anytime anybody stepped out of line. And if you did that, that means no sanctioning body would be able to align themselves with the promoter because then they would find themselves at the wrath of the fighters and get sued for, for you know, bad rankings, bad title shots, whatever, violating the Ali Act. Right. If that happened, that changes everything because suddenly your ranking on a ranking system has value. Uh, it kind of does in boxing. There's, there's limits to that. But generally, I mean, boxing, if you're, when you get ranked by a sanctioned organization, your value goes up because you, another fighter has to beat you to move up in the rankings. And to get moved up in the rankings, you, then you have to get all the way to the top to get that title shot, to get the title chance, and to win the title. And, and when you win the title, everybody knows, based on you know, the long history of boxing, and I think this applies to MMA too, championship bouts make more money than any other bout. Right. So, I mean, that, that's what it becomes. Suddenly, promoters would start, uh, the fi- fighters in MMA value would, the rank fighters, not every fighter, but the guys ranked value would skyrocket because they suddenly have value because they have a position and rank that's theirs, not the promoters, uh, that, uh, that's limited supply. So now they're in limited supply. So promoters would compete to get these guys. And the fighters would then be competing against each other for the title, and then the promoters would be competing over the fighters because they want the guy that's the best that's going to get the title. It'd be a much more open market that would drive wages in the top. That'd be revolutionary, and that's probably doubtful to happen because a lot of stuff has to you know fall into place. But uh, it, if it did, that would that'd be a big that would be a big boost for specifically, I guess, top ten, top fifteen fighters and their um, and and top prospects. Those guys would be really big winners in a system like that. Absolutely. Obviously, too, the the fighters are really pushing hard for for the Ali Act to extend MMA uh, for the disclosure of revenue. I I think I saw Randy Couture saying that that would be like a game changer as far as fighter pay goes in the UFC. Uh, I think it would help a lot. I mean, I don't know about. I mean, we over the last couple of years because of the sale, we've leaked a lot of information what the UFC makes. So right, I'm like, don't don't the fighters read John Nash and uh, Dave Meltzer? You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of <laughs> the information's kind of out there. So I don't know if it'd be as big. But oh, I'm I mean, sorry, it, Jason it Cruz, be, Jason Cruz, MMA payout. That, that yeah, too. but I, I think it would be big in the sense that uh, a fighter would know specifically what kind of impact he has on the UFC's bottom line. Right. That that would be big. I mean, that's one thing about boxing when you get that compensation, you're like. It's one thing to know what an event, you know, how much a promoter makes. It's another thing to know, wait, you make three times as much when I fight than when I don't fight. I have value. Right. Absolutely. So that would be a huge, I mean, that part, that part definitely would be big, but I don't know how much, you know, you could usually take it. It, that helps, but it's hard to negotiate when the UFC has all the leverage because you can't go anywhere else and make that kind of, the UFC is just going to say you can't, unless there's a system where free agency, you know, the ability to move around and there's competitors in the market. It doesn't matter knowing how much you make because you can't make that kind of money anywhere else. Right, right, right. Absolutely. There, there's, you know, there's the UFC and, and much smaller players, including uh, Bellator. Um, well, speaking of uh, leverage and negotiations, let's get to uh, the, the third piece of it. Um, now, this one, I, I haven't really, uh, I, I'm not exactly up to speed on, on all of the organizations uh, involved in trying to organize fighters into either a union or an association. So, and I know that there have been some who've tried and failed and have fallen off. Um, if you could just kind of 
straighten that out. Just you know, who who's the most active and and has the most momentum, and and you know what what are they trying to? Uh, is it an association union? If you could just kind of go into that, that'd be great. Okay, I'll go. The first group to appear uh, was the MMAFA, the Mixed Martial Arts Fighters Association. They're founded by Rob Macy, probably I don't know, uh, ten years ago, I think, eleven years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been around that long. And they haven't made a ton of. They did make a ton. They did not make a ton of leeway for years. But uh, even though they're not the guys actually following the antitrust lawsuit, they're, they're, they have a major part of that because all the guys, the plaintiffs, are members of the Mixed Martial Arts Fighters Association. And Rob Macy is the guy that, him and Carlos Newton are the guys that came up with the lawsuit and gave it to the, the firms to the apply it. So they're, they're really responsible for the antitrust lawsuit, and they're the major guys pushing the Ali Act. Besides them... But they haven't found a lot of, I guess, a lot of traction with uh, the, a lot of fighters. You don't see a lot of active UFC fighters signing up and joining them. Uh, you don't see a lot of media guys on their side. They're not, they're, the tr- honest truth is they're not a particularly popular group with a lot of people. Hmm. Uh, and I think that has to do with, uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with the, when they appeared, who joined, who went public with them, and also what they're trying to do. A, a lot of fans are just not popular with the idea of the UFC not having their own titles. And a lot of fighters, too. I, I think that's another, we can get into that later, but I think a lot of fighters are going to have a problem. Don't like the idea of the UFC not having their own titles. But then after them, uh, uh, the Teamsters, working with the Culinary Union, talked about organizing a group. That fell apart instantly. A group called the PFA appeared. Uh, uh, Boris, the the baseball manager, uh, he decided a uh, baseball agent. He was going to put together a sports. He was going to put together. He tried to make the union for the oh, fighters. Scott, that Scott team. Boris, really? Yeah, wow. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. You don't remember that? No, I don't remember that. Wow. That well, that's because it didn't. That didn't last too long. <laughs> you know, that's the uh, that's the. Uh, that one, that one collapsed pretty quick. That was uh, 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 actually wasn't Scott. It was Jeff, though, not Scott. Jeff okay. Morris, but okay. still okay. major, uh, major uh, sports agent. Uh, that fell apart, and then a group appeared. Remember, he got really excited called the MMAAA with George St. Pierre and Kane Velasquez, and they appeared, uh, made a huge announcement, promised a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, they had Bjorn Rebney's advisor, and then that fell apart. It, it just disappeared. Uh, when there's a lot of pushback and there's, I, I have a lot of, uh, there were some accusations directed at the group that, uh, uh, from the attorneys that are found on the antitrust lawsuit, that they really were there. At least they suggested that their intent was to get a piece of the antitrust lawsuit. That was the purpose of the, that, uh, that association. And, uh, there, I, I have some suspicions. I mean, you don't have every member of the, 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 the board of members, the, the leader board of the association, all belong to one uh, agency, uh, uh, one agent from CAA, and have uh, Bjorn Rebney involved without raising some suspicion. So. <laughs> uh, and then the final group now is Project Spearhead has launched, and what they're doing is very simple. They want a union, but their first goal is to get as many fighters as possible to sign union authorization cards, because if they get over 30% union authorization cards, the National Labor uh, Relations Board will have to take a look at whether or not fighters are actually employees or independent contractors. Right. And that's the five. That's the five groups right now. So now we're down to only two really operating. The MMAFA, who want an association, and the uh, Project Spearhead, who are trying to get fighters recognized as employees. And then if they get recognized as employees, they can, uh, they, can beca- they can try to form a union. I got you. So 
what are the pros and cons would you say of 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 the the association versus union for for the UFC it's, fighters? I mean, that's the big debate. I don't think a lot of people are are, are really you know I guess looking into it enough or, or asking themselves why there, there's these two different approaches. Also, got to be honest, the guys on both sides, I think, do a terrible job of explaining it. They may not uh, understand it themselves. <laughs> they might not. I don't think a lot of fighters really do. They, uh, they, you'll talk to them and like, no, it doesn't. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure it doesn't work that way. I spoke to a, you know, some labor guy specifically about this. I, you know, I spoke to a Professor Dworkin of Indiana, sports labor expert, and he specifically said it doesn't work that way. So I don't think that works that way. But what do I know? But uh, uh, it's the the difference is okay if. If you have a union is the usual solution for any sort of labor problem. I mean, it's unions are the more powerful of the two by far. With a union, you can collectively bargain. Right. You can go and say, here's all of our workers are bargaining together. They're all going to at the same time. And here's the people you got to talk to about that. That's a powerful tool. An association can't do that. That's illegal for an association to collectively bargain. That's a, um, that's a violation. Of, that's a collusion. At the same time, too, a union can strike. If if you can't come to an agreement, a union can stop work, and that's a powerful tool. An association can't strike because they can strike, but if they do, they have no protections by reprisal from the owner. The owner can take all types of reprisal, and if they want to, if they if they think there's collusion, they can even sue the 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 guys that are striking. Hmm. So that's another big weakness. But the one problem with the unions, they have these strengths with the union. You have is that the UFC is a single entity monopoly. In other words, UFC, there's a, the lawsuit's going to question if the UFC is an illegal monopoly or not, or monopsony technically. But I don't think there's any doubt that they have monopoly, monopsony power over fighters. There's just no way to argue they don't. They, they, they have as big a share of the market as you know any monopolies had. They can dictate terms to fighters. They do again and again. They tell fighters, nope, you can't wear your own sponsors in the cage. Nope, you've got to sign over your image rights. Nope, you've got to take drug testing that we demand from USADA. And nope, you, uh, you have to wear our uniforms with Reebok. And no fighter quits. Every fighter agrees to those terms. That's pretty much the definition of monopsony. Right. So the UFC is a single entity. And because they're a single entity, uh, they have, if you have a collective bargaining agreement with the UFC you have antitrust immunity. In other words, any company that signs a collective bargaining agreement with a union, during that collective bargaining period, the, the, the workers, like in pro sports, like football players, when they have a collective bargaining agreement, they can't sue the NFL for damages. So that, that's one thing that they can't do when you have a collective bargaining agreement. But because the UFC is a single entity, the association guys say, we can't get competition and it was competition that rose wages the way it did in the sports leagues in the sports leagues you have the reserve clause in baseball when they got rid of that all the teams had to compete for players and that's when wages really skyrocketed so the association's argument is if we can't force the owners if we can't force the ufc to compete with themselves because they're not a real league we need to sue them antitrust damages but if we have a cba with them we can't sue them for antitrust damages and unlike the sports leagues, there's no thing, there's nothing the UFC is doing that they have to do to, to function. Sports leagues need a draft. They need to uh, keep players uh, uh, have uh, you know restrictions on free agency and, and stuff like tagging a, uh, a franchise player because that's what keeps you know the league functioning. Otherwise, a lot of teams would just go out of business because they couldn't compete. Right. 
So they need that, those antitrust exemptions, so they need a union. But the MMAFA's argument is if we do that, if we, um, if we become a union, we lose the ability to sue the UFC for damages, and then we can't, we can't make them change their behavior. So that's kind of the two arguments. So do you have more power collectively bargaining and striking and trying to do stuff that way, or do you have more power basically suing the UFC and, and making legislation like the Ali Act to try to create competition. Right, right, right. And they both have pros, they both have pros and cons. I mean, there's, you know, there's no simple solution. You're kind of hosed. There are many ways you're, the, there's, not much, there's a lot of things you just can't change on either side, and then there's other stuff you, you hope you can change by either choice. Right, right, right. So there you have, I mean, you've got like three... Um, you know, kind of almost competing interests and issues uh, going on. And, and you know, with uh, with the antitrust suit, which if you unionize, you know, there goes the antitrust suit. Um, you know, you have the, the Ali Act, which you said a lot of fighters aren't, you know, necessarily in favor of because they, they prefer to, uh, to have everything all in one organization. And I'm sure, you know, then there's a consideration of the fans as well, you know, uh, um, you know that they would like to see all the top fighters maybe in one place and have them fighting for one title. Um, so I guess uh, you know if if John Nash is in charge and and he's the one who's going to write the policy for for how all this should work. How how ideally do you think uh, it should all get worked out? I mean the ideal situation, which would never happen, but I think this is the ideal, and this would be the ideal for boxing too, is basically. The UFC becomes the sanctioning body. Uh, the UFC becomes basically a non-profit sanctioning body. It has an interest. Well, they could be a profit, too, but you have to be a non-profit. But they have an interest in the, the betterment of the sport. And the UFC writes up guidelines. So, see, the UFC, they're the sanctioning body. They're the only titles that matter. So every promoter is going to want to work with the UFC to get that UFC label on their show because otherwise their sales are going to be a, a, just a, a fraction of what they are, Right. Right. So the UFC then can write up guidelines, and all their guidelines can have all these protections for the fighters. And the guidelines could be like, uh, uh, you know, like the, here's the minimum pay for, for every fighter. Uh, one of the rules is if you do uh, a title or a mandatory uh, title elimination bout under our sanctioning rules, the whole card has to be employed under UFC guidelines. So the whole card would have minimum pay. The whole card would have protections and stuff. You could have rules that the, you know, the promoters can't use certain type of contracts exclusions and, and, and stuff like that. Otherwise, you can't use our title. Go find another one. But you know, the UFC title is worth 100 times everybody else's. So you could do that. In fact, you could even have an association. I'm not 100% about the legality. I've heard two different you know, arguments for this. One says it's legal. One says it's itself an antitrust violation. But let's say the fighters or the boxers had their own association that ran the, the sanctioning body. Hmm. If that was the case, you could have all those things, and then the sanctioning fees could go to stuff like pensions and health care for the guys that are members. Right. And to me, that would be the best, because what would happen is in the UFC case, there would be one title. We would have basically a league, because there's these strict guidelines and rules, and everybody has to follow them to be fighting in the, that's those titles to go, to go for those championships. So you have a league. It's like it is in the UFC now. You're all fighting for the UFC belt and title, and it's all unified under one, one umbrella. But several promoters are, are competing against each other uh, for the fighters. And so wages would, you know, the, the promoter's share of the revenue would plummet, but the fighter's share would skyrocket. 
That is now, the, that would never happen. That would be my. <laughs> I think that's the perfect situation. Would never. That's a fantasy position. Never happen. Yeah, because Endeavor just they would have spent four point two, you know, billion dollars to become a nonprofit with 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 the UFC. Yeah, yeah. They're, well, they'd be like, yeah, we we go from making three hundred fifty million to making a cut of the sanctioning fee. <laughs> Great. And we have an a, a association of fighters or a union of fighters, however you want to do it. Uh, at that point, uh, breathing down our neck to make sure we follow the rules completely, and and that they, you know, that they're always coming out on top. This is great, but I, don't, you know, what they're already rich. I don't really care about those guys. <laughs> Not to be mean, uh, you know, you know, for, for you know, the Fertinas made four billion dollars on this, and hey, they deserve some reward. But I'm not sure four billion dollars plus whatever they made before is is a an equitable split between what the fighters got. Now, what's what's interesting, like again, like you said, the the. Neither the union, the union nor the association seem to have made a ton of headway in far as far as uh, actually uh, organizing the fighters and and even coming close to being a, an entity that could that could change things. Um, but I, I remember talking to you about the Ali Act, and I, and I thought like, listen, if you had, and when I say MMA fighters, not just the UFC, right? You would you would go to Bellator as well, right? Yeah. I mean, they, it'd be any it'd be any fighter would, yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, in essence, I mean, I, I don't know. Are there, are there any other promoters out there of, of MMA that are, would be, you know, who have like a world-class fighter? Like and, and not, I mean, in, in the U.S., uh, I guess the closest is the, the new professional fighting league, which used to be the World Series of Fighting. Um, and, you know, they, they have some, it seems they have some money behind them. So maybe in a year or two, they'll have some world-class guys. I got but you. Right now, it's just really Bellator and the UFC. The UFC has what eighty-five percent of all top ten ranked fighters, ninety uh, percent of the top five, and Bellator I think has like uh, twenty, uh, not twenty, but ten percent. So that leaves five percent for all the other promoters mm, mm, mm. worldwide. Wow, but even even that is probably less than ten promoters, right? All in. Oh, that are major promoters. Well, well, who even have like a top ten guy? You know. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the number of promoters that have a top ten. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, a lot of like KSW has maybe one or two guys that are ranked top ten in Poland. There are Polish promoters. Ryzen has a couple, but yeah. So there's very few. They're spread out. Very few. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's not that different in boxing. I mean, uh, you have. Pretty much, I mean, I guess we can segue now to, to talking about boxing. But, uh, you know, in in boxing, obviously, you have the Ali Act and you have plenty of competition. I mean, there, you know, many, many moons ago, back in the late 50s, there was, you know, one entity, uh, the IBC, that uh, that uh, had a lot of power and had all the champions. And there were only eight weight divisions in uh, and uh, they ran afoul of antitrust laws and, and got uh, busted up. So since then, you know, boxing's kind of been a free for all. Um, but you know, if you break it down to 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 who the major players are, there's really like four big players who have like the most fighters in the ratings. I mean, you've got the PBC, which overwhelmingly has the most. Um, yeah, PBC is like a federation. It's like you know, uh, uh, the Bellows Group and uh, and Mar- Leon Margolis and a bunch of promoters working under the uh, Al Heyman umbrella. Yeah, 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 exactly. The confederacy they, of promoters. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because some guys are signed to to, to Bella and Margulies. You know, a lot of them aren't, but they do promote. You know, Al Heyman's guys. You know, you know the the common thread there is that Al has them all signed. But I believe la- last time I counted, um, yeah. they had like maybe you know between you know 
40 and 50 um, guys in the top 10 and, you know, in the high teens as far as uh, world champions. And then you have top rank, you have Golden Boy and Matchroom who all kind of have about, you know, 15 to 17 top 10 fighters and, you know, a handful of, of world champions and then you have you know numerous other promoters, small smaller rosters, but you know a few have you know major play, you know major fighters like K two, K one, yeah, yeah, yeah. They have uh, Triple G and main events has Kovalev and you know Frank Warren has you know uh, I think he's got Tyson Fury. Um, so you've got you know, but even that like all in you know if you gathered up all of the I mean there's 17 weight divisions in boxing. I mean I think you if you if you took every promoter of uh of a top 10 guy in all of those divisions you'd still have less promoters than you have teams in the nfl <laughs> you know oh yeah oh definitely i mean it's it, well i mean it kind of shows you the ufc's uh where they are in the market too because if you took the top four guys in boxing hearn uh pbc which is a whole bunch of promoters but it's right. really one you know uh, they work together right uh golden boy and top rank those four you put them together, and then you get probably the total market share, or close to the total market share the UFC has, right? And the number of fighters. I mean, you put those together, and they, you have what eighty-five to ninety percent of all ranked top ten fighters and stuff. That's pretty much where the UFC is, right? Right. So that's how that's how big the UFC is in the sport. There's there's no one in boxing that has over fifty percent share of the market. Yeah, not not even close. Yeah, yeah, not even close. Um. But it's interesting because you know, um, you know the the one thing about boxing though too is you know there's no central governing body. You know, they don't have health insurance. They don't have you know 365 a year you know uh, drug testing like the UFC has. So yeah. you know it's it's definitely lagging behind. Um, but you know, again, when when you think about a league. Um, the league concept is really not that ideal for for sports like like MMA or boxing because it's 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 not like a traditional team sports where you know you have all of these owners getting together but they get together and and the whole idea is to keep things competitive between them and level the playing field <laughs> whereas in yeah. the, the combat sports you know the promoters are competing against each other and really you know in the in the UFC's case, they've they've pretty much eliminated competition. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, in mean, a weird way, it's um the with the International Boxing Club of New York with the Ali Act uh, and the structure of boxing. Yeah, the International Boxing Club of New York, and then you also had Don King in the eighties and nineties when he almost monopolized whole divisions. Right. The the the, the, the Ali Act, as much as people complain, it doesn't do much. And one on one front, it seems to be surprisingly effective. And and part of the reason behind the bill was it was an antitrust bill, an anti-monopoly bill, too. It was to prevent any promoter from dominating the market so much that they had a monopoly. And on that front, it's been very successful right. because, we had, I mean, PBC, try, it looked like they were trying to dominate the market. And remember, they were going to, rumors were they're going to make their own belts. Right, they're, and, try, uh, they're literally trying to become the UFC. That was yeah, the idea. Tim, <laughs> Tim Lukanoff sent a letter off that, hey, this would be a violation. Of, you know, basically, that put an end to the idea of their belts. They, you, they couldn't do what the UFC did. They couldn't control the titles, and that prevents a monopoly. But the same thing, the same problem with having this kind of this open market, constant competition, it's, it's not great for fans because there's a thing called the network effect, and that's what makes right. sports leagues become monopolies. And what that is is, 
because one league, you know, when, when uh, uh, the AFL and NFL were competing or the uh, American Basketball Association, the National Basketball Association were competing, what happened is they were competing heavily, but one league would get the better players and get the better teams, and then so more fans would start watching that. And because more fans and more money was going to that league suddenly, they would the next group of better players would say, I want to play in that league. And so it'd be this self-replicating uh, uh, cycle where more and more better guys went to that league until the other league couldn't compete and folded. And that's, you know, that's partly why the UFC is so big. Fans like that. They like that network effect to create a monopoly. Uh, because of the Ali Act, though, it does the great thing of preventing monopoly, but then it also prevents the network effect to give people what they really want. Right. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it seems like you know forming a league, which which I would love to see, is is next to impossible in boxing with all the federal regulation and and so on. Um, it's next to impossible. But you know the 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 beacon of of light that's got to come up uh, recently is is the World Boxing Super Series, which has kind of caught fire with fans because you know it's doing what what the fans want which is you have the best fighting the best uh, or at least you know when when they can actually <laughs> get those fighters to compete in the tournament yeah. um when, they, when they're available yeah yeah when or or you know they they happen to be in a weight division that none of the major players really have fighters in and who could block yeah. it um you know having tournaments with, with with the top fighters and select the weight classes you know to, you determine the best um so my my ideal would would be for boxing to have uh, the relevant promoters just kind of um, you know just agree to, to to work in a tournament style like that with all the weight divisions, um, but you know you'd have to uh, agree to kind of market you know uh, these tournaments to different networks and get them to bid and max out the profits for the fighters. Um, you know the, the the promoters will have to get together. I mean, it's I don't think it's going to come from the fighter side in boxing. It's got to come from the promoters because they have the exclusive contracts. They're the ones who who call the shots. Um, they're going to have to get it together. And obviously, you know, it would be great if they used objective ratings. I mean, there's a media run uh, ratings called the transnational ratings, which are fine. Or Boxrec has even more objective ratings that are just done on a point system, or you could do some sort of hybrid like they do in college football of, of those two, um, to get the tournament entrance and determine seeds, you know, this way you'd have the, the, the best fighting the best, but, you know, obviously in, in that fantasy world, you still have to deal with, with antitrust problems, right? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, it's, I think, I mean, the, the, to me, the, one possible solution, because Congress has already shown that they can, they have the power to interfere in boxing with the Ali Act and with the IBC, um, the, the the monopoly testimonies of boxing back in the fifties and sixties, corruption. The, I guess by the, the Congress wanted to, they could, I guess, de- designate one official sanctioning organization, like a universal sanctioning organization, and get rid of all the other ones. Or, could, but then, or but, what they could do is is do what what they did. Um... With the other major sports leagues, because people, I don't know if people know, people probably don't know the antitrust case law, but, you know, initially the NFL got nailed in, in, I think it was a a Pennsylvania uh, district court as a monopoly. Like they they couldn't, um, you know, I'm blanking on the actual, you know, specific facts of the case, but it had to do with negotiating a television deal. So they, along with the other major sports, banded together and they got an exemption. Um, 
a kind of a, a sports league exemption for I think it was basketball, baseball, hockey, and football. They all have an exemption in an antitrust exemption where they're allowed to band together. You know, the the teams are allowed to band together within the leagues to make TV deals. So. I think if, on the monopoly side, yeah, they're, they're granted a, uh, but that case law, the good thing people should be aware of that case law limited the monopoly exemption uh, to the monopoly side, not the monopsony side towards players. Right, 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 right. So they're, they're allowed to schedule, you know, work together to basically collude to, to make a schedule. Um, but yeah, exactly. There, there, there are still, you know, other problems. And I yeah. think. Yeah. When, when, when you have objective ratings, there would also be no barrier to entry. You're not freezing out any promoters. If promoters happen to sign fighters that get in the ratings, then they're in on the game. You know, I think that that's the great part about the World Boxing Super Series is that, you know, it's just like, okay, who, who comes to sign up? You know, who's, who's a great fighter who comes to sign up? But I think if it was a little more organized where you actually had it, you know, based on a set of ratings. I think that would be, that would be oh. ideal. Yeah, the, I mean, one, I mean, I'm mesmerized. We've talked about this. I'm mesmerized by the boxing super series for <laughs> you, and it, it just because, and I've, t- you know, and we can't say off the record. We, I, you know, I was telling you, I talked to, you know, I've talked to guys who are involved with it, but that's what makes it so fascinating to me. Is uh, it's an obvious, and we it's an obvious attempt to get around the Ali Act, even though it's right. in Europe and everything, and they, the Ali Act doesn't apply there. U.S. is such an important market that its influence spreads around the world. Right. So their idea is, okay, we can't make our own titles and own it. So what can we do to have a, a product that has a brand power that we're not dependent on our boxers to have anymore? We'll make a tournament with a trophy, the Muhammad Ali trophy. The tournament will get the prestige. So as it gains the prestige, fighters will want to fight in the tournament to prove themselves and get the attention and the prestige that comes with winning the tournament. And then fans will tune into the tournament no matter what because the tournament has attained so much prestige from all the guys that take part in it. Right, you know, right. The, the network effect self-replicating. And that's what I find, it's, to me, it's genius. It's a great way to get around the problem that you can't build a brand in, in boxing that has value on its own. No one cares about PBC. Right. Not to be mean to PBC. No one cares about the name Top Rank or Golden Boy. But right, suddenly, you, right. You couldn't world. do it as a team sport. You know, I thought yeah. about that too. Like, like you could. I'm like, you know, maybe they do it like college wrestling. You know, you have like a, a promoters league, and and you know, uh, you know, if it, they've tried, they, they try that in MMA, and it's the worst thing ever. No one <laughs> yeah, cares. Exactly. No one cares. <laughs> like, who cares that the heavyweight and the lightweight are on the same team? Right, right. You know, right they're right. individuals, so yeah, that doesn't. But that's what the world. I mean, that's the World Series Super Series of Boxing is. I mean, frick, I. I never followed cruiserweight because they're a bunch of, you know, Eastern Europeans, most of them. <laughs> and I'm like, suddenly I'm mesmerized by that tournament. Yeah. It's like, okay, now I've, I'm following these guys. This is fascinating. These are really talented guys that were, that floated under my radar before. Yeah. And the, and the fights, you know, have turned out to be really good, which is, which is a, a huge bonus. I think another, yeah. another thing that they did that was also uh, very smart. Um, and also I think to avoid maybe antitrust litigation or just litigation from the sanctioning bodies is that they they said okay well hey you know we're going to appease the sanctioning bodies if there's any you know mandatories that are due you know we're we're more than happy to incorporate them into the tournament oh yeah yeah um, that, that was that was pertinent that, but it also adds to the tournament because now you're unifying like the cruiserweights unifying all four belts yeah well what a, it's what a great selling point. it's great in that yes they are unifying the belts but you know 
by the time you get to the finals, no one gives a shit. If like you know the IBF strips the guy or whatever, no one cares. They're seeing oh, yeah, the best cruiserweights proven. in the he's world. He's the real title holder. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he's the linear title holder. That's the fascinating part. The person that exits this, he doesn't even have to pay the sanction fees and hold on to those belts anymore because he's basically proven he's the real champion of those four titles. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And that's where the Muhammad Ali trophy, as silly as it is, is, you're like, who cares about a trophy? Well, in the future going forward, the trophy, people are going to look at like, oh, the guy that held that trophy, that's a major prize because that proved all that weight class I fought that year, he's the best guy in the Absolutely. world. Absolutely. And, and, and you could... Basically, I mean, my, my thing was, well, why not, you know, why not do a tournament like every year? You know, maybe you, you know, guys who fared very well, they can come back. You bring new guys in. And, you know, obviously this guy just got through a tournament. So you give him an easy fight in his, in his next fight, you know. Um, or there could be a buy for the guy that won it. Next right, year it's like, right. okay, the winner gets a buy. The winner and runner-up get a buy and everybody else has to start again. Right. You do like the NFL playoffs, right? The two high seeds get a buy and then, you know, the other guys fight it out and then, you know. I, I think, yeah, I mean, it, it can definitely be done. I mean, they, they, they did that whole Super 6, which was much more complicated, um, but also enjoyable. But, yeah, I think the World Boxing Super Series has really got it down. It's just, you know, right now it doesn't appear that, you know, PBC or Top Rank or, you know, Golden Boy or, you know, even I guess Matchroom might have one one or two fighters in there. But, uh, yeah. um, it, you know. They, you know, that, that's where it gets complicated because, you know, these obviously in the States and, you know, Matchroom as well, they have TV deals. So, um, you know, if if uh, if the World Boxing Super Series, you know, does a division and it's on some rival network, you know, maybe they're competing against themselves. I mean, that's where, you know, the, the promoters would really have to cooperate. I mean, I don't know if it's, you know, I mean, all sports leagues are kind of joint ventures. I don't know if they would go as far as to do a joint venture or just kind of tacitly um, agree to, to, to just enter this tournament with their best fighters. Um, you know, it, it's very complicated when, when you get into the, uh, the, the TV deals and the individual promoters. And I think I remember asking um, one of the in-house counsel for one of the top promoters, I won't say which one, but... I was just like, you know, what, you know, well, why don't you guys just do a league? I mean, you know, you know, pooling the talent together and selling it to the networks is going to, you know, bring in a hell of a lot more money than each individual promoter who doesn't, none of you have enough fighters to really sustain great television for the long haul, you know? Um, why don't you, you know, pool your resources? And I mean, there actually was a boxing promoters association at one point in time, which, you know, was kind of went nowhere, but that's kind of the idea. And they're just like, why? Why would Bob Arum do that? <laughs> yeah. Well, and we were, but you I mean, if the, if this tournament takes off and finds a lot of success, your hopes kind of will come true because um, the one problem is success breeds, you know, imitators. So if every promoter starts to do it, then okay, the tournament loses its value and it's no longer right. the prestigious thing it was supposed to be. But let's say no one starts imitating this and this tournament continues, and that the fighters that take part in it. Uh, get such prestige that their value just skyrockets. They leave the tournament with tons of value. Well, other boxers are going to want to take part in the tournament because my, if I win or even take part of it, my value skyrockets. Right. And then what happens is because interest in it goes up because, oh, now we're finally seeing the, the, you know, what we want to see, uh, a true t- champion. Fans start tuning in more. The revenue starts going up. Well, then the other promoters can't resist it because they're like, damn it, I need a piece of that money because they have so much money right. that I'm not generating. They're generating all the money. I got to get my guys in that tournament. 
Right. It's like the, the, the big fights bring the big money, you know, and, yeah. and when the best, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if you uh, read the Sports Business Journal, but, you know, the reason, you know, top rank or, or ESPN was just like, you know, the PBC, if they taught us one thing, it's that, listen, when when there's good fights, when there's great matchups, you know, it brings ratings and obviously ratings brings money. You know, we're willing to spend money on that. But when you don't have good matchups, then, you know, it's you get like half the audience and you can't sell that to advertisers. So, um, you know, it's definitely all about the matchups. And, and with the World Boxing Super Series, you're getting, you know, the best or the best that you can get fighting the best. And uh, that's why the fans are loving it. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, you get a victory of Usek over, um, what was it, uh, uh, Bradius, Bradius or whatever. I don't know how to pronounce the damn name. But like, <laughs> they're all non-American, you know, Eastern European uh, names. But that's a kind of a, a, a star turning performance, not America, because no one saw fit to broadcast here like they should have. But in right. Europe, it's a big deal now because people saw it. And now he's going against, you know, Gassoff, who had a just as, you know, even a more uh, dramatic victory. Oh yeah, yeah, that was a fight everyone was anticipating because you had two huge knockout punchers who. who oh uh, yeah, it was. But now, now you know. Okay, the, the title, of the championship might be a, a a stinker, but guys have been paying attention to the tournament are definitely tuning in no matter what. Oh, absolutely, it's going to be huge. Yeah. It's going to be huge, and you know, I can only hope for boxing's sake that it ends up being a pretty decent fight. I think it will be. I mean, Usyk, even though he's he can box and is not the most exciting at times. You know, I mean, Gassiev's going to go after him, so he's going to make it a fight. So it, it 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 will be interesting. It'll be a, it'll be an interesting fight. But but again, you know, it's like as you said with the with the UFC and with with any sports league, it's about it's about money. It's about television money. And um, you know, I, I would think HBO has been really trying to find its way since uh, Top Rank left and and the PBC left. So it only stands to reason that they. They they have the dates and they supposedly still have more money than Showtime in their budget. So uh, you would think they'd go out and get at least you know one of these tournaments that the the World Boxing Super Series says they're going to. Uh, they said they're going to do maybe three tournaments uh, in in the coming year. So we'll see. I hope so. This I, this I mean I can't believe how much this paid off for me. I really you know I was not super enthused when it started, but halfway through, uh, after that first round, I thought, okay, I'm hooked. I am hooked on everything from this point on. Yeah. You know the 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 whole British basically British Final Four in the middleweight division, uh, super middleweight I super, should say. Yeah. Um, that that uh, right you know okay sure it was set up that way because they're going to make a lot of money in England. That it, it seems obvious they're trying to cash on the English market. The, on that, but it, the the whole thing was just it's it's worked out better than I expected, and it it kind of convinced me. I never I didn't think this was a feasible idea, but now I think this is uh, uh, hopefully it works. I think it is a genius idea. But the the problem again is uh, uh, like you're you're trying to bring structure to boxing. There's that whole dilemma. Uh, structure usually comes with a kind of monopoly control by you know the promoter, let's say, which means the fighters pay as a percentage at least plummets. Uh, but at the and but a chaotic you know massively competitive system uh, raises uh, the guys that are draws pay. So you have that that question. Do you want to? You know, if we if we make a monopoly in a combat sport, sure that's better for fans. It's it might even increase the overall interest and revenue, but it kills the the star. It kills the main guy, the guys that draw. It takes it makes sure that a lot of the money that they bring in doesn't go to them. It goes to the promoter. Mm, mm, mm. Well, I, I think you know with boxing um, again because there is disclosure and because there's just kind of been a custom and practice that I think 
you know, uh, you know, boxers make probably a, as high or a higher percentage than uh, than most of the sports leagues. They definitely make a higher percentage in, in my Oh, they <laughs> in do. My experience. We've yeah. got, yeah, in the antitrust suit, they actually yeah, you know, it's a show and they bring the percentages up. You know, the sports leagues are around 50%. Boxing, uh, boxing promoters, I think Golden Boy, if you, in their lawsuit with uh, Al Heyman, we can see what they paid out to fighters over three years. It was like 63% of all their revenue. Right. Went to the fighters, the boxers. Uh, top rank says they pay the same. And then if you look at the top guys, um, the top guys are getting, you know, uh, anywhere from 70 to 85% of all the money on their fights. All the revenue that the promoter's making off them is going actually to them, not the promoter. The promoters, and I think this is, to get back to UFC, I think in a weird way, this is why you would think maybe some promoters, competitors of the UFC would want something like the Ali Act in because it might give them a better chance. But I don't think anybody wants uh, to have a lot of competition in MMA because they look at the huge margins the UFC makes, and they're like, I don't want to be t- Golden Boy making 6 to 12% margins. Right. I want to be UFC making 30%, 40%. And so why would I want to introduce a system where we have to compete? My hope is that somehow I become kind of like the UFC. Let's just stick the way it is, and maybe eventually I'll be a UFC yeah, I think, I mean, I remember asking Pat English this question about, about leagues, and, and he was just like, oh, you know, no way, no way, no way. He didn't even want to talk about it. And I think it, in, in a way, it's kind of like, you know, all of these promoters are, are their own fiefdom to a degree, you know? So, you know, being individually able to, to get network deals and, and so on is, is advantageous to them. You know, having to give that up and kind of pool your resources, you know, it's like, how is that going to work out for them? You know, how are they going to be able to develop their young fighters and their second tier fighters? You know, obviously for the for the top fighters, it works out. You know, I mean, the best fighting the best, you can't help but make a ton of money, you know, with that. Yep. Um, but, you know, what, what there's also if you think about it, if, if you have your league structure, it does even it pivots the value of the boxers even more because. If let's say you have a league and and, and uh, CBS buy pays you know what a couple hundred millions a year for this league and they get to dictate you know what you know they're saying well the top number we want the top guys all to fight in this tournament every year so that means okay we already know who has to fight the top ten guy you know top eight guys have to fight right well if you're number five it's like I hey listen they're not paying that money uh, to you the promoter they're paying it to me the number five guy because I fit that slot you know right. you don't get that big a cut I know I get. My my cut's no longer fifty seven percent. I want eighty five ninety percent. Right, right, right. Yeah, it, it it would be a battle. That's for sure. Because yeah, it's like, you know, you know what it, what is the World Boxing Super Series? Are they a promoter? You know, what are they? And you know what what cut do the promoters get? You know, I'm sure the World Boxing Super Series has to take you know a percentage. You know, it's all the same pie. So uh, yeah. you know how it gets. Well, from up. what I understand is they have uh they they, they put up numbers to the. Uh, to the fighters, you know, just basically lump sums. There wasn't, it's not like a lot of deals where you get a percentage of all the revenue. Right. They gave very large lump sums to the promoters and their boxers, and their goal is to make additional money by, you know, shopping out for TV deals and venues. And I'm sure this first year was a big money loss. Uh, their whole plan's got to be lost leader. I've heard that, yeah, the, the, the payouts are going to be a lot less for the second year. So. Oh, really? I, I thought they were going to try to keep the same and just hope to catch up with the, uh, the, I was hoping they were, the TV rights and, the, and, and you know, uh, sponsorship deals and stuff, expand it. it. That would be nice. I mean, it's, I, I think if they landed, you know, 
a big money U.S. deal, obviously that that would give them more money. But yeah, I I have no clue as as to as to what the economics are for them. And you know, I I know they were paying like you know. Uh, seven-figure paydays to these guys. Oh yeah. So, so really, uh, HBO and Showtime are to blame if they have to scale back because they didn't jump on board with American help out. Way to go, guys! <laughs> exactly. I know. I've been killing them in all of my podcasts. So, uh, but speaking of TV deals, let's let's get to uh, let's get to uh, you know a very important one that uh, the UFC is trying to to negotiate uh, at this point. Um, any word? I mean, you know, you see drips and drabs about, okay, that, you know, obviously they promised investors they could get, you know, anywhere between 400 and 450. Um, and Fox is opening, uh, opening negotiation, uh, you know, what they were offering. It sounded like it was around 200. I've heard as high as 250. Um, what, what are you hearing about uh, Fox and maybe maybe other networks or, or well, well, entities? Well, mostly what I hear are just rumors and stuff. I uh, I do think, though, that four four fifty number they floated out. Uh, I think that's what they're shooting for. But I honestly think that they were much more realistic in their in, the, in their projections, and they they would be happy with three hundred million. I think they're they're to, to, to get the value they want out of the company, what they paid, they need about three hundred million. Mm. And you know, with that three hundred million, because of the way the system's set up, that's almost all. You know, that's what it'd be one hundred eighty million more than what it averages now, and almost all of that's profit because there's no revenue split. So that's just you just you just basically added one hundred eighty million to your EBITDA every year. Not bad from one TV deal. So, so yeah, they want four four fifty, but I think they would be happy with three hundred. Uh, right now, the rumor was that um, Fox went up to two hundred, maybe two fifty for exclusive full rights. Uh, that's not enough. The the rumor everybody seems to be repeating is that they're talking to the streaming services, and that um, you know that they're trying to get uh, Amazon or or even you know YouTube or someone or, or Facebook to put up maybe uh, all the money or at least the, the remaining you know the other hundred million to get the full, the deal that they want. That's kind of my expectation. They'll have the the they'll keep a Fox deal or maybe NBC they'll jump ship to because you imagine they want to keep some sort of normal broadcast platform for now right 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 because that you know that's how you reach the fa- that's how you reach the majority of fans um and that's how you get you know and that's where you can do these huge you know a fox can give you a big uh, uh a reach a platform to reach fans through all the other uh, attached networks you can't get that on amazon really i guess amazon could you know but no one looks at those pop-up ads i don't think the the ad uh, reach of an amazon is that great yeah, I mean, uh, you, you pretty much. I mean, I, I I can think of maybe one or two movies I've watched off of Amazon. I usually don't go to them for programming, you know. But at the same time, I mean, I think the UFC is also they're looking at the bottom line more than anything. They have to justify what they paid. So if Amazon wanted to pay the full fee to to get the exclusive rights, I think they would take it. It's like they wouldn't say no to it. It's just right. I think they would prefer a Fox deal and then whatever missing money. I bet, I bet you they'd actually love to get at least their foot in the door with an Amazon because that's the, the, you know, keep your options open in the future, streaming service. Absolutely. But how do you think that would affect, I mean, you know, in boxing, when, when, uh, when it went off of broadcast networks to premium cable, to me, that was kind of what led to the demise of, or at least the, the you know, the lessening of, in, in popularity of the sport. You think uh, it's a big risk to for for UFC to go off of Fox and FS1 and off to Amazon Land? It, well, I guess cord cutting is a big issue. I mean, I remember. I mean, I was a uh, I started being a box fan in the '80s, so 
uh, I, I grew up mostly because I was I watched more of it in the '90s. That was my big period of boxing, and, and then you know I guess skipped a few years after September 11th, and all the you know there was other stuff. The country was preoccupied for a few years, and then got back to it. That was my gap in my boxing knowledge for about three four years. But uh, yeah, I, I'm always used to it being on HBO. But I do remember as a kid watching like ABC and stuff have fights, right? And right. it was, and I think it did it definitely had an impact. I remember my dad used to really like boxing, and then stopped watching it completely, right? Right. So right. that's the people you're missing. Um, I could see the difference is we're going through a radical change uh, in people's viewing habits. So is, is it being on a cable network uh, that important now with how many cord cutters is coming? How, much, how many people are used to paying to watch on Netflix and Amazon? And the people that watch on Netflix and Amazon already take up the, the top half of the uh, earners in the country. They're the wealthier people. Mm. So uh, it's... I mean, it's hard to, I don't know. I mean, one thing I know about HBO uh, and them, if you, it's because people, so many people paid subscription fees in the, in the 80s, in the 90s, I should say, that HBO was able to pay such huge amounts that no network could pay at the time. Right. And that's the one difference, too. I mean, it, it maybe doesn't grow your audience, but it gives you more money for more revenue. And, um, and there's that to consider, especially when you're, you spent $4 billion on the company. So. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, I mean, obviously, yeah, you're, you're going to chase the money. You're a business, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it just to me, it's there's you know the big caveat is you know look what happened to boxing. I mean, they they chase money, and you know now they're they're scrambling to try and get back on on network TV um, because they realize you know how that shrunk the sport. Um, yeah, well, I, well, I think the other issue with boxing is that uh, is is that boxing's focus on the big fight. And it's just part of the nature of boxing too. That the big fight is everything, and uh, it. The longer we go on, it seems like our definition of a big fight gets narrower and narrower. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think. I think you know it. That's why you know the World Boxing Super Series has been uh, has been you know such a revelation because you know you're discovering narrative suddenly in boxing. It's like. Wow. You know, I mean, you know, th- this is how every other sports league works. You have playoffs, you have a championship and, you know, you have your big Super Bowl or, you know, and boxing just never has that. They have like, you know, guys kind of fighting random guys. And then, you know, eventually, you know, the, the public starts to follow a couple guys. There's some rivalry and, and then you make this big fight, um, you know. As well, uh, like my, my joke is that every this is basically every card, boxing or MMA, the top card, the top, the main event should be oh a fight that matters i know what this is it's a title fight these guys i know the undercard on um, the televised undercard is oh i heard of these guys right the prelims or whatever is like some dudes hitting each other <laughs> yeah with about 20 people oh for boxing it's like with about 20 people in the stands but oh, yeah, obviously no one it's cares. Just... no one cares but it's indispensable i mean you, you you can't not have that you know you have to be able to develop fighters from uh from uh, you know the four rounders to the ten rounders in boxing, so you know that's that's you know promoters have to have to do that that, that development and loss leader. Well, they lose. That's why they lose money on most of their, their fighters. Yeah, yeah, and and why you know you're losing money on on club show events because there's just not a lot of revenue there. But but you have to develop the fighters, so you have to you know just grin and bear it. But, yeah, uh, but it's uh, but that, I mean, it, yeah, like you're saying, is boxing. I was hoping, I was really hoping PBC was going to make a splash on, on network TV, 
I mean, they're, people were telling me their whole plan was... They're uh, still trying. Do, yeah. <laughs> they're, they, yeah, I don't see it, though. In fact, I think they... They, I think they even damaged uh, Top Ranks. Uh, you know, Top Ranks seems to have a pretty decent deal with uh, ESPN. But I think you know, if 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 PBC had done a better job of doing their TV deal, or you know, of their strategy, uh, Top Rank would have got a much bigger deal out of uh, ESPN. Mm, mm. But I, I think part of the thing was PBC had two thoughts. One was, yes, we want to get a two hundred million dollar year, you know, a massive TV deal on our boxing because you know then we don't even have to worry about HBO and Showtime we make more on our network deals than, than what their whole budgets are twice as much probably but their fear was I think we don't want to leave an opening for another promoter and so they spread themselves everywhere yeah yeah I mean listen I, I think that strategy was again trying to be the UFC I think what they were trying to do was you know maybe not kill the top ranks but everyone else you know uh, the, the yeah. smaller promoters that depended on you know uh you know, NBC Sports Network and, and so on to do, you know, little cards, you know, by squeezing them out, I think they were hoping that, you know, the fighters or the managers would see, wow, you know, the PVC's got made this big power move, you know, maybe I should take my fighter to them, you know, if I want to get them work, <clears throat> you know, I got to yeah. take them to the PVC and, you know, it, it didn't work out for them. And, uh, you know, main events well, are still my, alive. My, <laughs> yeah, my, my, my theory too is that they, they wanted the big TV deal um, but they did. But they knew if they if they did succeeded on TV, just some other, you know, the network that they, if they succeeded, let's say with Fox or with uh, Spike or someone, or CBS, whatever channel they're going for, with one of them, one of the other channels would say, well, we'll just go get Top Rank or Golden Boy or someone else to come, you know, because boxing's successful on TV, and so their plan was we want to make this huge TV deal, but we also want to make sure that no one else, there's, there's no spot on this huge number of channels that might be available for them to, to put shows on. Right, right, And so right. They, 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 had to, they had to pay, they are paying these fees to every channel to get their guys on there to block anybody else from ever attempting to do it if they succeeded. And it's like, you can't do both. Yeah, yeah, it was not, the, you know, they, they did not think this out the best, you know. I mean, obviously it was like the first attempt that anyone had ever done on this, but they definitely spread themselves too thin. And they also, uh, the networks complained, I know, that, you know, you get Danny Jacobs, you know, you, you spend all this money, you know, um, with the shoulder programming promoting Danny Jacobs. And then, you know, his next fight, you see him on another network. Like, you know, like we want some consistency, you know, we, we if we're going to tell this guy's story, if we're going to tell any of these guys story, we want them back. You know, we don't want to see them on yeah. another network. So but we don't want to spend our, we don't want to spend our energy to get ratings for this guy and then give the ratings to another channel. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it wasn't there. I don't know that there was this this great grand plan uh, for the PBC. Um, well, when you got when you got hundreds of millions to work with, I guess you can, you know, and who knows, maybe from, you know, there's. I don't know what the Heyman's full deal was, but as an advisor, he's supposed to get 10% of all his fighters. So as long as they're making purses, even if the the, the, the PBCs lose money, he's doing all right, it seems. Well, they, you know, listen, like like everyone else, I think they, they learned from the first few years of that deal. You know, you see the fights on Showtime now, you know, they're, they're much better fights. You know, you see oh, the yeah. top-tier PBC guys fighting other top-tier PBC guys, so... Um, I think uh, I think everyone in boxing started to figure it out. You got to you got to make the big fights. You know, if you want sure. if you want a, a programming deal or uh, you know you want to make some money, you just got to make big fights. But and speaking of the PBC and the UFC and boxing, um, you know, I have to have to ask you about um, Zufa boxing. I mean, hey, I went out and bought the T-shirt, so you know. Is, no, is, did you really? 
<laughs> for it's now fourteen bucks on the UFC website, dude. So I I, I, I figured it was either going to be really funny because it never happened, or you know maybe something does come of it. But uh, but um, yeah, Zufa boxing. You know, Dana said it's definitely going to happen. You know, definitely happening. They're definitely getting into boxing. Um, you know, my question, I guess, would be when and have you heard anything uh, about uh, the UFC's plans? I've heard rumors and stuff, but nothing concrete. I, I don't know what they're... I mean, my kind of guess, based on what a lot of people say, is that uh, I think part of it is that uh, there's they realize as much as uh, MMA has an audience, there's a limit to how much you can grow that audience. And uh, you can, and also that the MMA is cyclical, so that you know that goes ups and there's downs. So uh, you've got to, to protect against that, and also to make a bigger, to, to add another revenue stream uh, to justify again the price they paid. Uh, why not just introduce another sport that's really popular that that can sometimes make a lot of money? Right. And I think that's the plan. I don't think it's part of like adding value to the TV deal. That it doesn't really add value to their TV deal. No one wants to get Zufa boxing if they want UFC MMA fighting. It's a different audience, most of it. But if you're trying to tell the guys that you know that invested in to um to Zufa with William Morris or you're trying to, you know, with William Morris you're trying to explain why hey, if you're going to ever go public, hey, how are we going to make mo- as much money as possible in the UFC? Well, hey, we might have a limit to how big our UFC market is and we might be maxing out that limit. Because we've, you know, basically dot, we've basically taken control of the whole market. Well, let's add a bit. Let's add a new market. There's another revenue stream. We've added a few extra millions of dollars to our uh, revenue now and some profits. But I got a feeling they're going to get really frustrated with boxing quickly. <laughs> really? <laughs> what gives yeah. you that impression, John? <laughs> I just it's it's not the it's the, I'll tell you this. I don't know if people you should. T- Nothing against MMA, you know, the, the guys in Zufa, they're probably very smart and everything, but when you speak to a lot of people in boxing and MMA, I mean, when you talk to M- a lot of boxing promoters, they come out of the Ivy Leagues. These are not dumb people. Right. Yeah. You're talking about some very, the, the, just the, I guess because the shark tank is so much more competitive bar- in boxing, there's just a lot more sharks in it. Right. They're just not as big. They're just not as big because they didn't take over the market like one company did in the MMA. Yeah, I mean, listen. Yeah, it was a unique opportunity uh, that that uh, that Dana and the Fertitas uh, took advantage of for sure, and they they deserve tremendous credit. But yeah, it just it seems like you know, obviously there, there's no barrier to entry in boxing, but you know, many have tried and many have failed. I mean, you know, Rock Nation is is kind of the latest example of a very big, uh, powerful entity with a lot of money behind it that that got into the sport, and uh, you know, you know. Paid, you know, overpaid to get in, you know, you know, got a couple superstar contracts. They got Cotto, they got Andre Ward, uh, Rigondeau, and, uh, you know, just have not been able to make it work. Um, the contender is certainly, you know, had a lot of Hollywood money behind it and uh, it petered out pretty fast, although I, I, I do see it's it's being revived on Epics. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, just 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 thinking of how logistically it could work, it would seem like. You know, starting from scratch is, is not going to happen. Um, you know, either aligning themselves with the PBC, which was rumored that maybe they would tie those two together to, to get the deal with Fox. But you're saying that that doesn't really make any sense. Um, or, you know, I've heard Dana White, you know, in, in one interview, people talked about Anthony Joshua, the heavyweight champion of the world. Like, you know, 
you know, are we going to see him uh, fighting for Zufa boxing, you know, by the end of 2018? And Dana's just like, just smiled and said, you know, I hope so. <laughs> so you, do you see them maybe just making a run at like, you know, one or two star guys who can bring in big revenue or? I, I may, but I mean, is the, UFC, the UFC's uh, modus operandi is not, as much as they put a lot of money into it at times, you know, they, they supposedly put, what, $44 million of money they put into it before they turned around in 2005. Uh, they support, you know, they put out a bunch of money for, you know, acquisitions of strike force and, right. and pride, these other promotions. But I don't see, I mean, to get into boxing with the Joshua and stuff, to, to take him away from a Hearn or, or, you know, to, to make a splash on this guy on a, on a new platform, you're, you've got to promise him a lot. That means you're, you're based, to get that big a splash with those bigger guys, you've got to, you've got to invest a lot. And there's a lot of money lost in that. That means, you have to take a lot of loss leaders, so I don't I don't see him doing it that way. Uh, I mean, Apostle Two is with Fight Pass because they expanded to Fight Pass to kickboxing. Maybe they put boxing on Fight Pass. They had uh, Jones fight, right? Yeah. Roy Jones' last fights, but was on there, right? But but God, I mean, boxers. I mean, the the amount of money boxing gets and fees from like Showtime and HBO. There's no way I don't think Fight Pass is going to pay anything remotely close to that. So you're getting not very top-notch boxing. So I can't imagine many boxing fans are going to want to subscribe to Fight Pass for that. Unless they're, I mean, they could have a plan too. Is like, okay, maybe we can, you know, educate some of our MMA fans on boxing, so they'll spend money on boxing. But then, you, why do that when you want them to spend the money on MMA? Right, right. You, you, you know. You're, you're you're all competing for that uh, consumer dollar. So yeah, why yeah. why are you uh, why are you uh, so, educating I, them I about mean, a sport you've been calling dead for you know, almost yeah. twenty? Years. I mean, part of me says it's, it's this is something just to keep Dana happy that this is a, his own personal dream, hmm. and he talked him into it, and he's going to do it, and and maybe you know I, I guess you know Zufa boxing could probably be successful because they have in some in some ways because they have access you know to a lot of like a, you know they have meetings with channels they can talk to Fox they can talk to Zufa calls about boxing a lot of networks are going to answer the phone right so and they have you know they have relationship with the stadiums and everything so it's possible that um, that Dana can find some success in getting a stable fighter it's not a monster PBC like but a stable of guys. And put on events uh, and strike deals with the, the you know the networks and the broadcasters, even pay per view channels, and and be able to do a very good job with these group of guys. But I just don't see them making a huge splash. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me again, you know, probably not you know super well thought out, but you know, probably when when they were looking at you know potential revenues, um, you know, with the Mayweather McGregor fight, I'm sure Endeavor was like, oh right, yeah. All right, we got to get in on this somehow. That, that, somebody. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they looked at it and said, "Why? Okay, we've got a. There, there's so much money on this. It, Why is this know, making that, a ton more money than any of the PB? You know, the the UFC's yeah. uh, paper. Yeah, this one event made more, brought in more money than we do a whole year. Right, right. Or right. about. I think it brought in just about as much as they had the last couple of years. So that's you know that if they can do one event every few years, you don't have to do it every year. Every right. few, every third year, that's a huge deal. Right. And, you know, and especially if they can carve away because, you know, they can offer it on Fight Pass pay-per-views. In other words, they have a lot of ways that they can make more money than the typical promoter could. Because they, they can also offer it, uh, 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 work as a distributor. Right. So they, right. they could take that 5 to 10% Showtime HBO cut hmm. that they get for distributing it. They could take, they could put on Fight Pass and keep most of the pay-per-view re- revenue. 
So, you know, you could say, okay, we're working with boxers, and we have the same deal where the, 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 the guys in the main card are making 80% of the revenue on this. But we, we're also, that's, that's the net, the, they're getting 80% on the net. We get that distributor fees uh, on the gross. So we're still making, you know, we're making it twice. Well, yeah, compared to box promoters. There, there, there's another issue too. You know, the, the, you know, the how fighter pay goes. You know, are you going to pay the boxers on a different scale than the MMA fighters? You know, it yeah, I don't know a how whole uh, can of worms. Yeah, if George St. Pierre looks one day and 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 sees the next day that your main event tomorrow night in the boxing match is getting twenty million, and he's getting you know, on a, a, a match that sells relatively just as much, five million. Right. He's, you know, he's not going to be happy. And that's the other thing. I mean, do you want to risk pissing off the fighters? And it also seems weird. I guess maybe they just don't feel threatened by the Ali Act at all. That they, that the company would get involved in a sport that's regulated by the Ali Act uh, at the same, you know what I mean? At the same time, it's like you seem to be opening a can of worms with that. That right. someone can point that and say, listen, you're the same promoter. Why are these guys protected by the Ali Act and these guys not? Right, and why are you fighting this on on this side and and not on this side? Yeah, yeah, so, that's interesting. There's a lot of that. Yeah, hey, good uh, good luck to him. I hope he does well. I hope he, if he can put off great fights, I'm not going to complain. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see. I mean, I think uh, I think Joshua only has you know uh, a handful of fights, or maybe just one or two more fights, supposedly on his contract with uh, with Hearn. I think maybe it goes to the end of this year. I think mm-hmm. his his contract with Hearn. So. He's obviously, uh, you know, barring uh, any upsets this year, he's obviously the hottest uh, property in boxing. So it will be a very interesting bidding war uh, for Anthony Joshua. So, yeah, I, I can't wait to see what happens. I mean, he's he's posed poised to be the next major star of boxing. I mean, he's already there, but I mean, Max mega mega star. Yeah, I'm, I, I, you know. You know, assuming he beats Parker, you know, they are going to bring him to New York. It sounds like uh, sometime in the summer. So uh, that will be. Really, really interesting. See how that Wilder goes. and Fury are already two pre-built massive fights. And I guess if he wants to stay in England, they could bring Hay back. And, you know, and that's a third massive fight there, too. Well, yeah, Hay, yeah, Hay's, Hay's a wild card. I mean, Hay has a, a rematch with uh, Tony Ballou, the guy who knocked him out after he tore his Achilles in the fight. Yeah. So, yeah, should he win that? Yeah, it, it definitely lines up for Joshua. He's got a ton of huge fights in, uh, in uh, GB. So... Well, hey, John, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, great conversation. Um, tell folks uh, where they can find your work. Uh, you can find most of it on Bloody Elbow. It's a combat sports website. It's an electronic karate magazine, as someone once famously said. <laughs> uh, and uh, you can also see me. Uh, I, gotta, I do a few podcasts. I guess the main one is Show Money, which we do about once a month. Uh, Talk about the, when you feel uh, like it. <laughs> yeah, it's when something happens that we're talking about. We're you, we're not very uh, we're not very due diligent on uh, getting the job done on that show. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, but there's that, and then uh, yeah, and then you can follow me on Twitter at at, at Hey Not the Face, which which tells you what my boxing prowess was <laughs> when I was a kid. So that's that's it. And you know, I guess I have some other stuff and works. I have an article that's probably I don't know when this is going to be posted, but it might be out. Uh, about uh, that talks about a lot of the subjects we talked about today so you can find that and it's long and in-depth so it's kind of like this conversation so. <laughs> and then eventually when something on the Ali Act happens I'll, you'll see another piece that I, I liberally use uh, uh, Kurt on so woohoo woohoo <laughs> so anyone wants to yell at that one you can blame Kurt not me <laughs> 
Awesome. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate it, John. And, uh, you know, we'll definitely look out for that piece. And uh, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. All right, man. Take care. And that'll do it for another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast. I'd really like to thank John Nash for taking time out to speak with me. You can find his excellent work on MMA on Bloody Elbow and the Show Money podcast, which, of course, I love so much. Um, If you like this podcast, please leave a comment or a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you access the Boxing Esquire podcast. Um, Until next time, so long, everybody. Mm -hmm.